Lord, thank you that we get to study your word. Welcome, Joe. Good to see you, bro. We were just, just starting to pray, so you were just in time. Lord, thank you we get to study your word this morning and then hear your word preached later this morning, God. Um, God, as we're looking at the topics of humanity and then a different topic of sin this morning, I pray that you would teach us um, new things about that we didn't know before about what you say about humanity and what you say about sin, God. I pray that um, learning about those two topics would help us to serve you better, God, in a practical way um, as well. That, that it wouldn't just be some kind of academic endeavor to like learn your word, but that we would learn your word so that we would be able to better obey it and better love you, God. So thank you for this opportunity. This is a rare opportunity. A lot of people can't study your word like this or don't have access to this kind of teaching kind of thing. So thank you that we get to do this. Thank you I get to teach. Thank you we all get to learn together. Um, I pray that you would do that now. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so to start with, we're doing humanity, and then we're going to do sin afterward in the same uh, lesson. So a question I have for you guys before we dig into the nitty-gritty of humanity is, what is what, what comes to mind when you think of humanity? What are some ideas that come to mind? What, what does the Bible say about humanity? What comes to mind? I mean, and when I, you know, think of Star Trek, it's sort of weird, like, you know, the human experience all in it together, advancing forward. To okay. Where I'm mankind here. Right. Okay. I mean, that's not, that's absolutely it's not related, but it's not the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah, I got the first thing. That's what I wanted, man. The final frontier. Probably not the last thing that comes to mind. Okay. I don't know if it's actually specified if, other stuff doesn't have this, but like has a soul. Mm, yeah, yeah, cool. Well, right on. Okay, I my the reason I asked this question, and it didn't work, and that's maybe a good thing, was I assumed that a bunch of people would just say sinful. That was what I assumed people would say. None of you said that. And that's Vinyl Frontier, man. It's like kind of the album, like, like epic, we're taking over the world. Anyway, um, I, the point I was going to make, which I'll make now that I've told you what I was trying to do, was say, look, humanity is actually a really beautiful thing that God created. We are beautiful. We're even, we're going to talk about, we're made in God's image, and that's like a really gorgeous thing. It's true that we are sinful, but as I hope to show, that's not something actually inherent to original humanity. Our sin is something that's been, our, our corruption is something that's been imposed upon us. But God made us beautiful, and in fact, very good. Um, so that's just something I think worth, if we're inclined to say that, hello, Chief. Dude, welcome. Good morning. Morning, brother. Um, we're, Chi, we're talking this morning about humanity, and then we're talking about sin. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to point out and kind of push against this, like, the first thing we think about is sinfulness. Like, that's not, I think that actually would be a misplaced first impression about humanity, is what I was trying to say. So, okay. So Star Trek. So Star Trek. 
<laughs> for the record, is a helpful reminder that through Jesus we will overcome the world. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Woo. Okay. Um, so God's purpose for humanity. We talked about this when we talked about providence. So I'll just reiterate it here. God's purpose for humanity is the same as God's purpose for doing everything. And that is that God's people would lovingly glorify him. To summarize Ephesians 1, 11, and 12, God works all things so that we would praise him. God works all things so that we would praise him. So that's God's purpose for humanity and, in fact, everything, as we talked about in the Doctrine of Providence. So the next kind of, like, main section I want to talk about with humanity is that humanity is created in God's image. You've probably heard that before, but hopefully I can clarify a few things about what that might mean. Humanity is the only creature created in God's image. Humanity alone. Everything else in the Genesis 1 narrative, and we read that a few weeks ago, so I'm, I'm not going to read that here, but everything else that's created in the Genesis 1 creation narrative is created according to its kind. According to its kind. But then, humanity, not according to its kind, it's made in the image of God. So according to their kinds, according to their kinds, and it was so, according to their kind. But then, there's a difference with humanity. Humanity alone is made in the image of God. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And we talked about this too in creation. So some of our doctrine of humanity and doctrine of sin is kind of tied up in other stuff. So I'm kind of summarizing here. Humanity is the pinnacle of all that God created. Humanity is the pinnacle. Genesis 1.31, every, everything else in Genesis 1, he made it, it was good, he made it, it was good, he made it, it was good. But Genesis 1.31, God creates humanity. It's the end of the sixth day. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Once humanity shows up, things are very good. His creation is very good. We are the pinnacle of his creation. Even after the fall, we're still made in the image of God. In James chapter 3, he says, With our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, but we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So he's accusing us of cursing people who are made in God's image. That assumes they're made in God's image, right? Like, we are still created in God's image. The image of God is corrupted in fallen humanity. We're going to talk about the fall um, in a moment, but for now, just let's accept that our image is, the image of God is corrupted in us. It's not perfect, but we still do bear God's image. In fact, salvation is often described as being transformed into God's image. So we're, we are still made in God's image, but we're transformed to image him even better. Um, Romans 8.29 is one example. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Um, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we're transformed more into the image of God that we are created in. So, Okay, that's great. Nice to know that we're made in God's image. What does it mean? What does it mean that we are made in God's image? In some ways, there's a lot of like controversy in some ways about the specifics of what this might mean, what the boundaries are. I think some of that honestly might be a little misplaced. Image and likeness just means we are like God and we represent God. We can talk about what the specifics of that mean, and I will describe some of the specifics of what I think that means, but 
to take a 500-foot view, we are like God and we represent God. Scripture, this is one of the reasons why I think it's a little misplaced to like really go to the mat over like specific aspects, is Scripture never tells us explicitly all the ways that we image God. It just tells us that we do. It just tells us that we do. So, a kind of an example of what I'm getting at here, we're like God, we represent God. Genesis 5.3 talks about how Seth, Adam's son, is like Adam and images Adam. Genesis 5.3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So Seth is Adam's son, and he's like Adam, and he represents Adam. In a comparable way, we are like God and represent God. We're not equivalent to God. Seth isn't equivalent to Adam. But they're like him. He is like him. We are like him. So some specific aspects of the image of God. I think it's still helpful to look at some of these. We've studied the attributes of God a few weeks ago. We looked at like what, what are the things that make God God? Holiness, perfection, justice, uh, order, love, like various things, everywhere present, that, those kinds of things. In all of the ways that we are similar to God's attributes, those are ways that we image God, that we represent God. Many of those things we can't help but do, like love is one of them. There, there's some sense in which we're going to love something. We're going to love something, right? We don't love perfectly, that's the corruption, but we're going to love something. That's a way that we image God. Um, and some of these things we're actually called to do because now after the fall, those things don't come so naturally to us like loving well. Like we don't all love well, do we? So anyway, here's a few that I'll just, I'll just kind of list these off. Dominion. Dominion's a part of being made in God's image. It's actually what God says right after he says, make man in our image. Let them have dominion over the fish, see the birds and the heavens over the livestock, all that. So having dominion, the fact that we have authority over the earth is one way that we can image God. Creation, we create things. God created things. Our work, our vocation. I get this idea from Tim Keller in Every Good Endeavor. Great book about work in general, but he made a, a really cool point that has really stuck with me that... God created, God worked, he, he even rested from his work on the seventh day. As we work and rest, not that we have to take a Sabbath per se, but as we work and rest, we image God. We represent God. The fact that we are built for relationship, God is eternally in relationship with himself. We talked about the Trinity, the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the same way, we image God when we live in relationship to him because he's in relationship with himself and we image him when we live in relationship with each other in community that's not just in a marriage oftentimes sometimes people will say you image god best when you're married i just don't think that's necessarily true that's true that humanity can image god through marriage marriage is one way that humanity images god but singleness is another way that humanity images god Paul talks 1 Corinthians 7 about you can be productive for the kingdom in all these unique ways and if you're single. So, and both of those are <clears throat> valuable ways that humanity can image God. It's not just one way or the other. Um, and so similar to being in relationship, I mean, salvation is being in relationship with God ultimately, right? And, and that's another aspect that's unique to humanity. Uh, and I think this is a significant part of our image-bearing quality. In 1 Peter 1.12, uh, it says that 
the angels long to look into the things of salvation. We talked about this in our angels and demons lesson, but the angels long to look into the salvation that's ours. We have salvation. We alone have salvation. We are made in God's image. We are created for that kind of relationship with him. So that's, that's another aspect in which we're unique. Um, we talked about love. We have morality like God does. Not to the quality or perfection that God does. One of our attributes is not perfection. That's one of God's attributes. But intelligence, communication, making art, technology. We have emotions. We have perception, hearing and seeing. The Bible talks about God hearing and seeing our prayers and our actions. We, um, this is related to the marriage one. We reproduce. God makes us, his children, in our image. And then like Adam and Seth, we make babies, our children, in our image. That's one way that we uh, image God. We're relational. That's demonstrated in our living in community. All these things. We, we image God in all sorts of different ways. Something I think that's important to, to know is that Christ is the perfect image of God. We don't image God perfectly, but Jesus does. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Christ, who is the image of God. Who? It's not just he's made in the image of God, and it's like he needs to be saved to be more in God's image. No, we need to be saved to be like Jesus, who is the perfect image of God. Jesus is the perfect image of God. Colossians 1.15 is another one. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. There's a number of other verses there that you can see on the notes if you if you'd like. But the point is, Jesus is the perfect image of God. He images God perfectly. He is like God and represents God perfectly. Because he is God. We're not God, so we don't do it perfectly. We are corrupted humans. Jesus was not. So, what is kind of practically, what is the image, how is the image of God significant? What are some implications of being made in the image of God? or the fact that all humanity is made in the image of God. One of those is we need to affirm the, the dignity and like legit, the value of all humanity, all people. So Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, that's the first moment that we have. A, God actually institutes capital punishment in the Old Testament. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. So this is like a particular value for God. Is Look, you will value humanity because they represent me. They're like me uniquely. If you kill them, you're going to die because there's such a penalty. There's such a value on them being made in God's image. In my image, if, we're, if God is speaking here. So that's like that's the first indication we have of this. And it continues on throughout the, the Bible. So here's some specific examples of types of categories of humanity that we need to affirm as being all made in God's image. There's many more than this, but all races are made in God's image. Racism is not acceptable because God created them in his image. Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Another way you could render that is every ethnicity, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Everyone is acceptable to God. Every type of nation, every type of ethnicity is acceptable 
to God, and God died for those people. Revelation 5.9. You were slain, the Lamb, Jesus, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, and people, and nation. All types of people Jesus died for. They are created in God's image. Let's treat them accordingly. All sexes, Genesis chapter 1. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Man in that sentence refers to like mankind, humanity. How do I know that? And let them have dominion. He's not talking about Adam, the only man. He's talking about Adam and Eve, the only humans at this point. Them, plural. Humanity in our image, them. So men and women are both made in God's image. And then verse 27, male and female, he created them in his image and likeness. So all sexes are created in God's image. There's other verses that say the same thing, but I'm going to continue moving forward here. All economic statuses, James 2.9. If you show partiality, and in context he's talking about in between the rich and the poor, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So that's a similar kind of phrasing to how God doesn't show partiality between people of different nations. Like God, Peter's like, God doesn't show partiality between nations, ethnicities, neither does God show partiality between economic classes. All ages, Proverbs 20, 29, the glory of young men is in their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Another way of saying this, if you will, young people image God by their strength. Old people image God by their wisdom. Those are both, I mean, those are both attributes of God, aren't they? God is strong, that's an understatement, but God is strong. <laughs> but then also God is wise. Those are both attributes of God. Those are both ways that we image God. And then perhaps a controversial one, I, I doubt in this context it'll be controversial, but all children, including in the womb, are made in God's image. Psalm 139 talks about how David existed as a human in the womb. There's a number of other verses. I'm not going to read them all. But Psalm 139, 13, 16, you formed my inward parts. He's praying to God. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, God, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So I think that's a really good ground to protect children in the womb. At the same time, to be... I want to be pastoral both to also if there are women who have had abortions I think that's wrong I don't think that's right but those women are made in God's image as well so let's treat them like it I think that's a criticism people give to the church of not treating women in that category well and I think that may be fair so let's treat them like they're made in God's image as well even if we don't think what they're doing is right women who have children are often vulnerable and perhaps even outcasts in society. How, how can the church treat those women like they're made in the image of God as they really are? So anyway, all people, that's the point, all people are created in God's image. Let's treat them that way. A side note concern, a side note concern. There is a saying, a dog is a man's best friend. I don't think that's a good phrase. I think it's a bad. So, okay. And I know Joey has a, a dog that he loves. And I love that Joe loves his dog. 
And so I don't want to criticize you for loving your dog. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that. But our dogs are awesome. But our dogs are not made in God's image. And maybe this is in some ways a silly point. But if we find ourselves disliking humanity more than other aspects of God's creation, I think there is some, that's a way that God, I think, would want us to grow to appreciate his likeness more. Does that make sense? If we love anything, and I'm not really only just talking about dogs, I just, in some way, that's like a, a springboard into saying what I'm really trying to say. If there are things that we like more than the things that image and represent God, I think that's a, a reason for us to ask God to grow us. I get why people say things like this and other related things about all sorts of other things, like I like my work, not my family, or whatever. But, and there's more problems with that statement than I love my dog. <laughs> hear, hear me say that. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I do happen to be allergic to them, so maybe that's a bias. <laughs> oh boy, but my point is that, so sometimes, you know, people hurt us and that makes us want to like hang out with dogs who are loyal or go to our work, which never hurts us or, you know, whatever. I think that's a reason for us to say, okay, God, why don't I like who represents you more, if that makes sense. So that's like a, a side note. So are you saying, sorry. Yeah, go, let's do it. Let's do it. Are you saying that we should like humans more than anything else in creation? I think so. I think we should have an affection for them. That now, maybe I didn't handle this great. No, and this I, might connect back to earlier. You were saying that humanity is the pinnacle of creation. Yeah, so and this I might be connected to that. Yeah, I think humanity can be difficult to love. That's for sure because we're fallen and we we hurt each other. But I I think God reserves a unique place for the for humanity as creatures. And I would want us to be challenged with that kind of a thought of, okay, if this is the pinnacle of God's creation, and plus I'm a part of it, I should, I should appreciate this aspect of creation more than any other aspect of creation. Yeah. I think I can, I think I can jive with that, because I feel like another phrase that I... I don't really care for dog that, that like I, I don't have a vendetta against that phrase. Like my, my parents run a dog rescue, so I grew up with dogs and love dogs. But something that I, I'll hear a lot is like I love uh, or, or church is great. What do they say? Like church is perfect if it weren't for the people. Or like oh, sure, sure. people say like my job is awesome if it weren't for the people. Like yeah, 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 so yeah, I yeah. understand that like that's probably the extreme side of what yeah, you're saying is like, yeah, no, yeah, that's yeah. like there's definitely a heart check. How would you maybe walk through this with someone who is, say, dispositionally introverted yeah. and would prefer solitude as opposed to yeah. being with a person. Yeah, that's that's a cool question. Honestly, maybe I'm realizing I hadn't thought as much about that as I, I should have. But, no, that's a really good question. I, I On the one hand, we, we definitely want to encourage people who God has built to be introverts to, like, really exist that way. Because even, like, I mean, Jesus seeks solitude, you know, like even like God is a peaceful, orderly God. Like it, it is right to have time alone, to connect with him and to have alone time and to be orderly in, in a lot of ways and have some, some peace. You know, that's like right. And so, but, but I, I also 
I, I guess my challenge to either an extrovert or an introvert, to the extrovert, like, okay, are you imaging God well? I'm trying to connect it to the image of God idea. Are you, extrovert, imaging God well by, like, running 90 miles an hour, hanging out with people all the time, and never really having, like, quality, like, quiet time yourself? Because then you're not imaging God great yourself. But then the introvert, like, if you're an introvert just because you hate people, <laughs> that's something to, like, work on, sure. I think. But if you're an introvert, because God's, like, genuinely built you that way, and a lot of my friends are that way, I happen to be pretty extroverted, and I need to take the rest aspect of the advice. But if you're an introvert, I would hope that your introvertedness isn't motivated by, like, a, a distaste for people. But maybe it's just, oh, I, I get tired. Yeah, sure. You know? Um, and I will, like, add a caveat, and maybe I'm making it more complicated, because introversion and extroversion are like human terms they're not yeah i don't think it's a biblical concept sure i think that solitude is a biblical concept sure and the fact that we're designed to be in community and meant to interact sure is, is a biblical concept yeah 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 but maybe what you're saying is that these terms that we throw around might be excuses that we could use if we don't if we're str struggling with that heart issue that you're talking about yeah and i guess it could be but then it does go back to the like it's not like we, we can't love our dogs a ton, it, you know, or something like Like, I wouldn't want to go so far as to just be like... Like, we should hate our dog. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, like, you shouldn't even like it. Or, or you should give more attention to other people than your dog. Like, well, no, actually, you have dominion over your dog now, responsibility. And, like, you should love your dog. You should love creation. God created it, you, you know. But how, how does that maybe compare to your, like care and appreciation for like humanity in general like human beings do you feel that you have care for them and love for them i guess would, would be the the challenge i was trying to bring up that I, I think i didn't do as great of a job and i wonder if there is a connector or a difference between like affection and value yeah yeah i think that's because i think that's great affection for dogs yeah totally and we but, should have that and I, but yeah and i think most people would say that no well i do value yeah. human life over yeah, 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 sure, but sure, what sure. What you're saying yeah, is if yeah. you're starting to value creation over mm. humanity, then mm -hmm. that is disproportional to how Sure, yeah, that, 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 I think that sounds better. Joe, as a dog owner, do you feel like what we're talking about is fair? Yeah. <laughs> right on. Yeah. I will pick Tommy or Alton Blake. Because <laughs> as a non-dog right. owner, like I'm just someone who's not gonna have pets. I'm allergic to everything, and I have eczema. It's just a problem for me. But I would want to make sure what I'm saying is like legitimate. You know, not just like this is easy for me because I don't have you, you know. But okay, that's yeah. That, that's a great question. That's helpful. All right, good stuff. How would you feel about continuing? Your questions are going to be under I guess they will be. No, it's perfect. No, I think it's good. So oh, we do, this, this happens in, yeah. all the okay. time. Yeah, it's perfect. This, this is the way it's supposed to be. I do get pretty excited, though, so I forget to like ask when people have questions. So that, that's good that there's people who yeah, interject. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do the ADHD thing. Yeah. Okay, this is perfect. Okay. And that was a good pivot point anyway. So now... We've talked about being made in God's image, what that means, roughly speaking, how that still happens today, even though we're corrupted after the fall. Human nature. What is human nature? So we've talked about um, the divine nature already. We talked about that when we talked about the attributes of God. What, what consists of God's nature are 
the attributes of God. Holiness, perfection, he's everywhere present, he's all-powerful, all these things. In a similar way, human nature is a list of characteristics. Some of those are similar characteristics like we mentioned, but they're not going to be identical because we're not God. So, for example, human nature is limited, God's nature is infinite. Human nature is present, God's nature is everywhere present. You, you get the idea. So, we have, we have a human nature, there's a human nature. What is that human nature? What does it consist of? In the interest of time, I'm not going to like dig as deep into these as we could, but I have one passage that I think summarizes a lot of how we should use the whole of what we are to serve God, and that gives us a glimpse into a little bit of what human nature is. This is going to be a little bit less of a major deal than how I talked about the divine nature, which we basically talked for an entire hour about. But in Luke 10, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. So it's kind of a fourfold heart, soul, strength, mind. This is what humanity is. This is what humans have. Humans have a heart. That's the first thing. The heart is the kind of center or operating system of the of the human. In, in the Bible, when the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament, talk about the heart. It's talking about the depths of us. This is why Jonah was cast into the heart of the sea, and Jesus was buried in the heart of the earth, the depths of a person. Um, Proverbs 27, 19, is a, I think, encapsulates as well. As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. So the idea is you look in the water, you can see your face, right? We've all had that experience before. The water reflects our face. As in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects the man. So the heart of us is reflected in us. The depths of us are revealed as we express ourselves. This is kind of the same idea as um, Jesus saying, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out of us? comes from our heart, from the depths of us. Okay, we have a heart. Humans have a soul or spirit. Uh, but this is the soul or the spirit. I understand those terms to be basically synonyms when it's referring to an aspect of a human. It's part of the, it's the non-material aspect of a human. Like, I have a body. That's part of my humanity. I have a body. It's right here. You can see it. It makes noise. My soul and my spirit doesn't make noise like that. It may now, I may, in my soul, I may decide to sing because my soul cries for joy. But how does my soul do that? Strictly speaking, it uses my vocal cords to do those are physical, right? So the soul spirit is the, the non-material, I guess the mind, you might say, is a little bit non-material. A brain is physical. Anyway, the soul and spirit is at least a non-material aspect of the human. Um, though one, one difference in the in the Bible, when the in in, ter, in in the New Testament, when the oh, it might be both old and new, but the, the 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 word soul can refer to the entire person, but the word for like spirit can't refer to the entire person. Like, like sometimes, oh, a thousand souls, like a thousand souls added to their day. That that could be just souls, like not material parts of a person, but it could be a reference just to an entire person. That's what the word can mean a whole person or a non-material aspect. The word spirit doesn't mean, ever mean that. But basically those terms are interchangeable 
in Scripture anyway, so there's really not a huge difference. I'm only saying this because actually there are some Christians who will say, oh, the soul is like the emotional part and the spirit is the part that goes to be with the Lord forever or something like that. The Bible really never distinguishes like that. John 12, 27, Jesus' soul is troubled. John 13, 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So both the soul and spirit are troubled. Both of them go and depart to be in the eternal state. The spirits of the righteous are made perfect in the presence of God. The souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus in Revelation. So, um, basically, I think they function in a similar way. Um, we're not going to look at all of the different passages that people have used. Okay, the one, the one verse that people use to say a soul is different than a spirit is when Paul, uh, not Paul uh, in Hebrews, it says... The word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and tensions of the heart. If the soul and spirit can be divided, they must be different, and that's why the soul is responsible for my emotions and the spirit goes to be... This is just a list. Number one, the word soul can refer to whole person, so maybe it just is a reference to like the depths of us, like the spirit is being severed from our whole person and is being like investigated by the word of God because it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So I just don't think this is a great ground to say they're two different entities necessarily. Plus, yeah, so anyway, that's soul and spirit, non-material part of the human. So far, so good? Okay, okay, cool, 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 cool. Humans have a body. I don't really think that that is something any of us are wondering about, but... The Bible says we have a body. Who will transform our lowly body to his glorious body? We have a body. It'll be transformed to be like his glorious body. We have a body. All your strength. We have a body. <laughs> Humans also have a mind. 2 Corinthians 10, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So, okay, well, we, we make arguments. We have opinions. We have knowledge. And we have thoughts. We have a mind. This is... Basically, in, in a Spartan's version, that's human nature. We have a mind, we think, we have bodies, we feel, we, are, we have strength, all your strength. We have a soul that cries out to God. David often talks about, oh, my soul cries out to God. You know, like, it's the inner parts of us, the spiritual aspect of us that longs for God. Um, our hearts, the depths of us. These are the things that basically are human nature. There's more that we could say about what makes a human a human, but those are, I think, some basic ones. That's going to become relevant, just so you know where we're, where we're headed with this. This is going to become relevant when we talk about how Jesus became a man. He had the, the divine nature eternally, right? He's the second person of the Trinity, but he added a nature to himself, and that was human nature. That's a kind of a sneak peek. We're really not talking about that right now, but... That's going to be good stuff. Anyway, so that's kind of why I'm laying some groundwork for what human nature is. So that, that's, in a lot of ways, our doctrine of humanity. Let's look at sin. Let's look at sin. A definition of sin. I'm, I'm a definite, and this is probably not the only legitimate way to define it, but I'm defining sin as a personal offense to God. A personal offense to God. Where do I get that? I get that from Psalm 51 in particular. There's a couple of different ways we could, passages we could point to. But David, after he goes and has sex with Bathsheba, has her husband murdered for it, this is what he says. Against you, 
you only have I sinned. Against you, you only have I sinned. And there's a sense in which that's technically not true, right? I mean, he he had he he basically forced, I mean, borderline, he might have raped Bathsheba. That's a sin against her. He had her husband murdered, that's a sin against him. I mean, there's a lot of ways in which he is sinning against others, right? But what does he say? Against you, God, only have I sinned. He, he's talking ultimately. Ultimately have I only sinned against you. So even when David sins against others, that's not negated. But the ultimate reality is that he sinned against God personally. Then he goes on to say, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Matt May's sermon, in Matt May's sermon, he, he said this, and I, I loved it. God is not transactional. God is relational, is what Matt said. God is not transactional. God is relational. And it's our, our sin that severs our relationship with God. That's what our sin does. But this is why I'm calling it a personal offense. Because God is relational. I mean, Jesus in John 17 is like, the reason I came was so that they would love you as you have loved me. And you would love them as you have loved me. All the, the, it's about a relationship with God. And so our sin is a personal, like, relational, in other words, offense to God. So that's why I, I call it a personal offense to God. Sometimes people will say, ultimately sin is, I have a little list, selfishness, greed, lust, unbelief, oppression, injustice, you know, you name it. And it's true, those things are all sin. That's true. But I I just want to make sure I we highlight that sin is sin ultimately because it's between us and God. It's an offense that we give to God. So yeah, injustice is, is bad. That, that, that is sinful. But why, at the end of the day, why is it bad? I've sinned against you only. Not, not even against the poor here. I've sinned against you, God. I have sinned against the poor. I have, but ultimately, it's between me and you, God. Ultimately. So that, that's why I'm kind of pushing on that a little bit. Does that make sense? Okay. The most common phrase used to refer to sin in both Testaments, Old and New, is a phrase that means missing the mark. You might have heard this before, missing the mark. Now, in Hebrew, chapa, miss the mark, or Greek, hamartano, miss the mark. Both of those things are archery terms in both Testaments that mean to miss the mark, like to miss the bullseye. So you've, you've missed, you've missed your goal. What's that goal? Leviticus 19. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Repeated in Matthew 5. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, for crying out loud, indeed, Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Huh? I mean, we have missed the mark of God's perfection. We don't have time to read the, the narrative of the fall in Genesis 3. So to summarize, so we're, the next kind of section I'm talking about is the fall. This is the entrance of sin into the world. God created it, Genesis 1.31. Very good. It was very good. No sin yet. And then Genesis 3.1. The serpent is slithering around, and he was more crafty than any of the other creatures that God had made. He basically tempts Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve eat the supposedly the apple. doesn't say it's an apple, just FYI. It, does, it just says the fruit. We don't know what the fruit was. The fruit of the tree of life is probably something we haven't seen yet, so I'm guessing it actually wasn't an apple. But anyway, that's really not what we're talking about. So, and then humanity's cursed. The snake has to slither in the ground. Eve will give child, will have go through birth uh, in pain. And Adam will, by sweat on the ground, 
um, toil and suffer as he does his labor, um, and also they are going to die. In the day you eat of this, you will surely die. Those are some kind of key features. Also, at the end, God drives out the man from the Garden of Eden. So those are kind of, I was going to read that, but those are the major themes that we're going to highlight here. The results of sin after the fall. That's the fall. That's the entrance of sin into the world. What are the results? The whole world is cursed. Genesis 3.17, cursed is the ground because of you. The ground. The ground didn't do anything wrong, did it? The ground is part of what Adam had dominion over, and God cursed it. God cursed the the cosmos, really. The the whole world is cursed as a result of what Adam did. Romans 8, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. Creation was subjected. So Adam's sin subjected the entire world, the whole cosmos, to corruption. Even animals die. Before the fall, humans ate only plants. Genesis 1.29, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth for food. But now... God kills animals, one, to cover their shame. He makes skins for them to clothe them when they realize they're naked. And he offers them as food in Genesis 9. Every moving thing um, that lives shall be food for you. As I gave the green plants in Genesis 1, I give you everything in Genesis 9. So now we're omnivores, if you will. All of that's a result of the fall. Death is a result of the fall. But significantly for us, as far as... We're talking about sin. We're also going to, I mean, humanity is related to sin because we have sin in us, right? Humanity is now cursed. There is death in general. In the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. Well, death in general, that's physical death and spiritual death. The physical death is our body dies and our soul passes on. The body apart from the spirit is dead, James 2. But spiritual death, I believe, uh, is the most terrible result of sin and what we most... uh, what we most desperately need saving from is spiritual death. Spiritual death is separation from God. People, some critics of the Bible will say, hey, God said in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And then Adam lives to 130 years and has Seth, you know, as a, like 130 years later. He didn't die. That, that's a criticism some people will give to the Christian belief. I think that's misplaced. I mean, I'm a Christian. I think the Bible's true, as you know. But they spiritually died. They were driven out. Genesis 3.23, the Lord drove him out of the Garden of Eden. That's spiritual death. You can't be with me anymore, Adam. You're not able to be in my presence anymore. Similar, Isaiah 59, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. We are separated from God now. That relationship, Matt May's sermon that rightly said God is relational, Oh, yeah, that relationship has been has been severed by our sin. We're guilty. Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What is this you've done? That's guilt. We have shame. They knew they were naked. They made for themselves loincloths from the fig leaves. Adam says, I was afraid, God, because I was naked, so I hid myself. There's shame. That, that's a result of the fall. Pain and suffering because you've listened to the voice of your wife and ate the fruit that I said, don't eat it. Cursed is the ground. In pain, you shall eat of it. Thorns and thistles it'll bring up. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat your bread, and then you'll die. There's corruption as a result of the fall. Uh, Psalm 14, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. That's humanity. We are corrupt. So there's a lot of verses about corruption. 
but I know we're in the interest of time, I'll, I'll keep moving. The question of how we became corrupt is a question of original sin, which we're going to talk about in just a second. I'll only mention here, as a side, we, we might rightly ask, when and how did sin originate? Where does it come from? How did Satan fall? I've said this earlier in the class. At the end of the day, we don't know. When, when did the fall of angels happen? Sometime after God made it, and it was very good on the sixth day, and sometime before Genesis 3.1. So sometime in there, when that's when the serpent slithered in the ground about to tempt Adam and Eve. We don't know other than that. We, Jesus talks about having seen Satan fall, but we don't actually know what happened there, what motivated Satan. What da, 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 you know, That's a mystery to us in a lot of ways. So we don't know where sin originated, per se, on an ultimate level. Um, we talked a little bit about that in, the, in our Doctrine of Providence, but some of this we just don't know. But for now, original sin, original sin. What is original sin? So, by way of reminder, Ecclesiastes 7.29, God made man upright. So, humanity was created, Genesis 1.31, it was very good but they have sought out many schemes. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is just a reminder that what God created was very good and without sin. Um, but then how did sin enter into the world is our question. That's the question of original sin. I'm not gonna read all these passages now, but a few that are relevant to this conversation are Romans 5, where um, Paul talks about how Adam is the one who basically cursed humanity. Jesus is going to be the one now who redeems humanity. That's also 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and then Ephesians 2 talks about how we are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's a spark note summary. I have the passages there. What is the definition of original sin? That is both a, just a, that's a muddied question because people use the term differently. There's no agreed this is what original sin is, and that makes it difficult to use the phrase, doesn't it? Where do I turn? Left. Well, I meant that way, but I'm calling that left. Like, what are we doing here? You know what I mean? So anyway, what do people mean Adam's first sin? Do people mean the sin we are born with because of Adam's first sin? Do we mean the corruption we are born with because of Adam's first sin? Or the guilt we are born with because of Adam's first sin? Or the guilt we are born with because of our corruption because of Adam's first sin? So I'll, I'm going to try to clarify some of this mud, but... That's why that pretty much every time there's like a discussion of original sin, people always have to talk about what exactly they're referring to because we haven't actually agreed what it means. So anyway, here are some terms that a lot of people use that I'm going to use as well to help clarify this. Adam's first sin. I'm going to call that Adam's first sin. The one recorded in Genesis 3 is Adam's first sin, right? That, I feel like in some ways that, that's not too bad, too bad. Inherited guilt. Now, I'm, I'm not... You're going to realize in a minute, I don't actually believe in inherited guilt exactly, but inherited guilt is the idea that we inherit Adam's guilt. The guilt he had, we inherit that guilt that he had. Or, this one I do affirm, inherited corruption. The corruption that Adam gave himself, we inherit from our father. So inherited guilt talks about guilt. Inherited corruption talks about corruption. The dominant, now, you, you heard a few weeks ago when I talked about providence, I'm someone who subscribes to reformed theology in general, in broad strokes. That, that's something that I think is fair to say about me. So, I want to say from the get-go, I don't actually hold the dominant reformed view about original sin. 
which teaches original guilt. Original guilt meaning, so two part, part A, part B. Part A, I agree with. Adam sinned and thus became guilty of that sin. I, I, I think that's really fair. Adam began, have you done this? The answer is yes, I have, I'm guilty. But part B, Adam's guilt is imputed to all of humanity. So in other words, Adam's personal guilt is directly given to all humanity at, at their conception. This is inherited guilt, that Adam's guilt becomes our guilt. His personal guilt because becomes our personal guilt. I don't believe that. That's inherited guilt. Before I talk about why I don't believe that, there are two ways that theologians will argue for this. So because I'm kind of going outside of the tradition I usually subscribe to, I feel like it's fair for me to offer to you why they say this. One reason is that they will say, this is what Augustine thought in like the 400s AD, early view, the whole race was spiritually present in Adam when he sinned, and therefore all of humanity sinned when Adam sinned. So she, you were there, you were in Adam. So guilty, that, that, that's literally the view. I'm not trying to make fun of it, that is the view. Second option for saying that inherited guilt is true. Now I don't believe the first thing, but anyway, Adam's human, Adam was humanity's representative. And therefore, uh, now I believe he was a representative, but therefore the guilt that he personally had, I now personally receive. That, that's, that's how it goes. It's a representative view. So here's my view, which all, for the record was also Calvin's view. And he's, so I think this counts as being, still being in a reform camp. But anyway, this is what I believe in John Calvin also happens to believe if that's worth anything to you. We inherit moral corruption from Adam, not his personal guilt. We inherit the moral corruption from Adam, not his personal guilt. So I affirm inherited corruption, inherited corruption. I agree that Adam re represented us. He, he certainly does. I mean, he is the head of all of the human family. He is our representative. But I reject that that makes me guilty of his personal sin. In fact, I think the Bible says we're never guilty of someone else's personal sin. Deuteronomy 24, 16, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. There was capital punishment in the Old Testament. That, that's a conversation we, we can leave closed for a moment. But the point is, you're guilty of your sin. He's guilty of his sin. Ezekiel 18.20, I think, is even clearer. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. I think this is a good reason to reject inherited guilt from Adam. Now, I think we're guilty. Cheat. Um, I have a question. So how do we like, like merge like the Ezekiel passage with like the, the Exodus 34, like listing the sins of the father? Oh, good question. Great, great question. Great question. So in my mind, the way to understand those like generational curses um, is to say, okay, there are sins that our parents have done that affect us. They definitely affect us, and that's a curse, man. I mean, like when a mother who is an alcoholic gives birth to a baby and that baby is born an alcoholic or a drug addict, that is a certainly a curse, I, I think. That's that is rough, that is hard. But that is different than saying, hey, infant, you are guilty of being an alcoholic. But it is saying that that infant is 
reaping the consequences. No doubt. Yeah, absolutely. So is that how you would explain passages like in Deuteronomy when it says like he, like God will revisit the iniquity yeah. of the father sin on the children? Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's like hard for kids to grow up in a house like that. It's not impossible. And there, as I'm about to say, we are all guilty of sins which have been produced by the moral corruption that we inherited from our first dad, you know? So in the kid, in the example of the alcoholic, if that kid grows up and starts drinking, I think that kid is responsible for his sin if he's going to become a, a drunk. You know, for example, there's more to say about that, like we need to care for him, etc. You know, yes and amen, that's more pastorally important in some ways than what we're talking about now. But for the sake of the theology, I think if someone sins, they're guilty of their sin, whatever brought them to arrive there. But I don't think that kid is guilty of his mother's sin of being a drunk. He's guilty of his own sin of being a drunk, is what, what I'm putting forward. How does that, how does that, like, how would you walk someone through, okay, mm. that seems even more unjust, because mm. yes, mm. I might not be responsible for the sin of my parents, but I'm paying for their sin. Like, yeah. How do you differentiate yeah. those things pastorally? Yeah, that's a really great question, Tommy. I think... Like, like if, if someone were like, that, like, that's not fair kind of a thing. Yeah, sure. I think there's a real sense in which that's true. I think there's a real sense in which that is not fair. So, like, using a biblical example. Sure. When, when, when God's talking about sins of your forefathers. Yeah. And that, the iniquity of that sin being revisited yeah. on future generations. Yeah. Is it saying that the future generations are experiencing the punishment or discipline that was due to previous generations that they yeah. did not incur at that time. That's a good one. I, that, that may be a, a right way to say it. Uh, I, off the top of my head, I'm inclined to say I, I understand it more in terms of like a, a curse than a, like a you're being punished for the sin that your dad, like both of them are kind of true. In my mind though, when I'm punished, if my life is like hard, maybe that maybe that could really be understood as punishment. Like I have a hard life because my parents had a bad life and made bad decisions. That that is in a real way. I get how that's that we could call that a punishment. I'm not like saying that's wrong. But there is something different between the difference between consequence and a punishment. Yes, yes. I I think that that's a really great way to put it, Tommy. That yeah. That, I think that's what I'm trying to say. If I if I am like a violent dude. Right, and I just like punch Ellie in the face and just punch other people all the time in the face. My kids, if I have them, will be affected by my violence. You know, and, and so that those are the consequences of my violence. Like, oh, my dad like punches people in public and now people think I'm weird because I have a weird dad. You know, to say the least. You know? But so that's a consequence. I think so, that's so right. you so you would say that we never experience the punishment for our parents sin. I think that's right. Yeah, because like say my son like if I punch Elliot in the face, my son's not gonna be judged. No 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 for like, like more practical is like yeah. okay if I if I struggle with gambling and yeah. I incur a ton of debt yeah that debt to my children. Yeah my yeah. children are paying for yeah yeah those are the consequences of my sin. Yeah sure sure but sure. you but but you would not say it's biblical to say that well my children are being punished. Yeah even though they're experiencing the consequences we certainly it's, it's getting money right? yeah it does get money it does but the only thing I, yes and it does get money because sin is cosmic right i mean even 
like the fact that gambling exists is a result of the fall. And so it's in some ways not even just your fault that you're gambling because gambling exists because of the, you know what I mean? It's not just that you did it. It's that there are systems, you know, that have produced this and made it accessible. So it, it is more complicated. The world is more complicated than are you guilty or not? All I'm, while all of this is really true and hard to parse out and pastorally difficult, all I'm exactly trying to do is say, if I do something wrong, I alone am guilty of my wrong, of my personal wrong, Jordan. Whereas there are people who actually think I'm guilty of having eaten the apple. They, they literally think that's what I'm guilty of specifically. And I'm saying, I don't think that's quite right. But I'm affirming we have a corrupt nature that does produce wicked deeds, which we are then guilty of. So there's a sense in which I'm guilty because of Adam. Because Adam gave me corruption, that corruption produced actions that I'm now guilty of. But that's a little bit different than saying Adam is guilty of that sin, therefore I'm guilty of his exact personal sin, right. is all I'm trying to distinguish. But it's, I mean, even, I mean, their generational corruption has influenced us to such a degree. We are sinning in ways that we couldn't have 500 years ago in some ways. You know, like the accessibility to pornography is one example I think of. It's not that adultery is new. There's always been like cult prostitutes and you know, all sorts of different ways, but these are in some ways unique in another way. You know, are we guilty of that? Not exactly, but we're guilty of the actions we commit in this corrupt world still. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's, yeah, it's a messy. And you would never use that as in, like you'd never say, okay, I'm not guilty of Adam's sin. And if I were in his shoes, I'd never do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because you are, in some, you would do it. I probably, I think I probably would. I think I probably would. Right. Yeah. So I can't, and I think it would be a little dishonest to object. Oh, come on. Why'd you give me this bad nature? I wouldn't have done that. Like, really? You wouldn't have done that? I mean, how do you know that? Now, Adam didn't have a corrupt nature to start with. So how was he able to sit? That's like a deep question in some ways that I don't know the answer to. At least we know that he was able to sin, yet he was very good. We are stuck sitting now because we're corrupt. So, but I just, nonetheless, I still think if he did it, why wouldn't I have? You know, like, I, can I really say I'm better than Adam? I don't, I don't know that. I'm actually a lot worse <laughs> because I'm corrupt. <laughs> he was not born that way. You know, um, yeah. How are we feeling? Okay. Okay, we receive Adam's corrupt nature. Um, okay, yeah, we've, we've, we've basically done this. As an aside, people will say that Calvinists and Arminians disagree over the doctrine of original sin. Hot take. I actually think that's false. I don't think that there is a disagreement about original sin, strictly speaking. I think the disagreement is how is that sin remediated? What is the human role? That's a different question. So I just kind of wanted to, like, Say that. Like, there are a lot, like, oh, are you the Calvinist view, the Arminian view? Da, da. I actually don't think those are substantially different views about original sin. The issue is, how, do, how is my sin resolved? That's a question about how salvation works and stuff. So let's put that in the right spot. So I just kind of wanted to mention that. Um, okay, I'm going to finish this up in five minutes. I know that we're, we're a little over time here. And that's beautiful. This is good. This is good. Okay, point one, everyone sins. I imagine... Unless you're John Wesley, you're not going to disagree with this, and we'll talk about John Wesley <laughs> later. But 
First John 1 John 1.8, Wesley thought that there was such a thing as Christian perfection, and we're going to talk about that later. But First John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We all sin. Romans 3.23, we have all sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We all sin. This sin that we're talking about, this theology, is relevant to all of us. We all have it. We sin in our motives and desires even. So wrong desires are sin. There are people who will say otherwise. There are people who will say, well, it's only a sin if you act on it. It's true that it's a sin if you act on it. But I think the Bible goes further than saying it's just that. Our desires are corrupt, and that, that is sin that we're liable for. Matthew 5, we talked about this Sermon on the Mount a few months ago. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, Old Testament quote, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, that's an action, yep. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus isn't worried, did you cross the boundary? Jesus says, what do you desire? What's your intention? Ephesians 5 no immoral, impure, okay, yep, those are relevant words for a different study, but, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of God. Greedy, greedy is literally like a disposition. It's not even an action. A greedy person, so our, our desires are, we are liable for those. Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. I'll highlight the ones that are relevant for this discussion. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. Evil desire. That doesn't say evil action. Evil desire. If I desire sinful things, I have sinned. If I desire sinful things, I have sinned. Covetousness. If I covet, I mean, this is one of the Ten Commandments, do not covet. Covet is not even necessarily a, a physical action anyway that I like accomplish or something. It's a, it's a desire of my heart. So we are liable for the sin of our motives and our desires, even. That really puts in proportion the gravity of our sinfulness, doesn't it? I mean, I want bad things all the stinking time. I'm pretty sinful. I'm pretty sinful if those count as sin. As we, I think, will recognize, we sin in our actions as well. Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Actions, those are clear. Yeah, I think we get that. Chief, yes. Alex, yes. Yes. Uh, is, there, is there a difference between temptation and desire? Good question. Good question. Oh, that's a good question. I'm thinking we 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 may want to, to finish this and then and then do yeah, that. Yeah. Um, but I think about the verse. Um, no one has a title. Yeah, yeah, the James one, where we are enticed by our own evil desire. Sin, uh, desire gives birth to sin, sin gives birth to death. There's like a, 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 a sequence. Yeah, I can find a way. Okay, yeah, yeah, that, that's great, that's great. But that's the verse I, I, I'm thinking about right there. Um, okay, we sin in our actions, we know that. God punishes sin. I think we know that, but as a reminder, some of God's attributes are perfection, goodness, holiness, justice, jealousy, and wrathfulness with respect to sin. Isaiah 13, I will punish the world for its evil. I mean, it, there is a punishment for sin. There is a punishment for sin. And it can't, whether it's purposeful, ignorant, 
accidental, whether we are deceived, whatever, sin is sin. Sin done in ignorance, Luke 12. That servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to the one who did know. Sorry, I skipped a line. I'm so sorry. That servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. Okay, you know what you're supposed to do? You don't do it? Severe beating. Severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Okay, you didn't know. You did the sin ignorantly. You didn't know, but you did it. That's a light beating. But in both cases, God holds us accountable for sinning, whether we knew it was a sin or not. We're still accountable to God's perfect standard. We're accountable to still be holy. Sin done by accident. Leviticus 4 offers a ton of different protocol. If you sin by accident, you need to do these things to make amends. So sin is still sin, even if it's accidental. There are people who will say, well, you didn't know, so it's fine. You didn't know, so it's fine. I understand that if you didn't know, it's not as bad. That's what Luke said. He is a light being. But it is, we are still accountable to our sin. We're still responsible for our sin, even if we didn't know that it was sin, actually. I think this is one of the great reasons in Psalm 119 when David says, teach me your word that I may keep your statutes. You know, like, I'm accountable, God. I'm accountable. Help me. Okay, sin's done by accident. Sin's done when we're deceived. Often, I mean, there's a list here. There are a lot of verses that talk about we sin when we are deceived. We're deceived by Satan or ourselves or other people. There's different passages that say both or all three of those things. We're accountable for our sin nonetheless, though, when we do sin. Okay, here's the good news. Here's the good news. We've talked about sin for 25 minutes now, but here's some good news. As Christians, we can take heart that although God does punish sin, Jesus was punished instead of us so that we don't actually get punished by sin. So Jesus Jesus said, no, your guilt is mine. That's epic. That is so awesome. Jesus took my guilt, took my shame, condemnation, corruption, sin, all of it. He died with it on the cross and was judged for it so that we wouldn't have to. Titus 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We were wicked sinful together. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by in righteousness, because we sin, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit. God saves us from our sin. That's the good news. The future of sin and its effects is going to permanently go away. Genesis 3.15, God says to Eve, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, or to the serpent. Between you and the woman, that's Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring, he, her offspring, shall bruise your head, and he shall bruise his, you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. That offspring is Jesus. Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of Jesus Christ be with you. Jesus is going to come and crush the serpent. He's going to invite us to join him, crush the serpent under our feet as well. Not just Jesus' feet. We will participate in the crushing of sin. And then Revelation 21. He will dwell with them. We were separated from God, right? No, the broken relationship? Well, not anymore. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with 
them as their God. No more casting out of Eden. We're welcomed in to the same room as the tree of life now. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And that is our doctrine of sin. So that's what we have to look forward to.